Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And the title is, What is Your Greatest Need? What is your greatest need? To some, it's a romantic relationship. So they leave their spouse to seek after that. To others, it is a comfortable lifestyle, so they live behind their families, their beautiful wife or loving husband, and run after that, which will bring them joy. And to others, it is success in their professional fields. And they give up everything to to go after that. To others, the most important thing is their children. And so they become soccer moms and soccer dads and, and drive their children all around the town and glory in the success of their children. And to others, it's peace of mind. To others, it's happiness. To others, it's security in life. The question this morning is, what is your greatest need? The greatest need in your life is to be rescued from the wrath of a holy God. People spend hours and hours of their life trying to seek after the most important thing in life. They care less for what is going to be for the life after. Because if you were to die today and without knowing the sovereign God... Not some fancy God, a God of your, a figment of your imagination. If you die today without being reconciled with the God of the universe, without coming to terms with the judge of the universe, you will certainly face judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about that. That after death comes judgment. Uh, if you've been raised... In your life, thinking that you have to do something to gain God's favor, like fasting, attending church every week, getting baptized, serving on various boards of social organizations, going to mass, praying the rosary, keeping the Lent, or maybe you have a utilitarian view of the gospel, then let me tell you, you need to listen to the truth proclaimed today from Ephesians chapter 1. Here we see that salvation from top to bottom is the work of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, we see the work of the Father in choosing us, in predestinating us to adoption and to and accepted us in the Beloved. In verses 7 to 12, we see the work of the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us by His blood. He has forgiven us, revealed God's will to us, and made us an inheritance in Christ Jesus. In verses 13 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us and has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our inheritance. Today, we will be looking at verse 7, which is the middle verse a middle section of verses, seven, uh, verses 4 through 14. And, and here we read of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus brings us to salvation. God is the architect. He is the initiator. He is the predeterminer of our salvation. And Jesus Christ is the accomplisher of this great salvation. As one preacher said, it is like God is at the left. The Holy Spirit is at the right. And Jesus Christ is right at the center. And verse 7 reads, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We will look at two truths today. Christ redeems us, verse 7a, and Christ forgives us, verse 7b. So if someone wakes you up tonight and says, What did Pastor preach? You say, Yeah, he rede Christ redeems us and Christ forgives us. That's a two-point basic Simple outline we can take with us this morning. Let's look at the first truth. Christ redeems us. Verse 7 begins with the phrase, in him. The King, J King, uh, the King James uh, reads, in whom. This points us back to the beloved we have seen in verse 6. The beloved is Christ. He, it's in the sphere of Christ. It is connected to Christ. Excludes all other possibilities. There is no other way you can gain redemption. It is through Christ and Christ alone. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is no salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
It is through Christ and Christ alone that you can be saved. First Timothy says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 7 continues. It says, in him we have redemption. The we refers to the believers. Those who have been chosen by God from the foundation of the world. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. From the foundation of the world. The we. If you see it here, you're, you're a believer. It refers to you. We have redemption. What is redemption? The pastor of a church in Boston met a young boy in front of the church carrying a rusty cage in which several birds fluttered nervously. The pastor inquired, son, where did you get those birds? And what are you going to do with them? And the boy replied, I'm going to play with them, said the boy. And I'll just feed these birds to the old cat that's in my house. When the pastor offered to buy the birds, the boy replied, mister, you don't want them. They're just little old wild birds and they can't sing very well. The pastor replied, I'll give you $2 for the cage and the birds. Okay, it's a deal. But you're making a bad bargain. The exchange was made and the boy went away happily with the shiny coins. The pastor walked around to the back of the church, opened the door of the cage and let the birds out. The next Sunday, he took the empty cage into the pulpit and used it as an illustration to show what Christ did for us. He came to seek us, to save those who, like the birds, were destined for destruction. The only difference was that Christ had to purchase our freedom with his own life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You were not ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers with perishable things like silver and gold. It was not $2, it was not $100, it was not $1,000. It was his own blood. He gave us life as a ransom. So redemption means a release from bondage by the payment of a price. Jesus says in, in uh, Mark Chapter 10, verse 48, that the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to save and give his life as a ransom for many. This begs the question, why should we be ransomed? And the reason we are to be ransomed is because we are in bondage. We were captive. We were enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. We were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to the guilt of our sin. You probably heard of the tragedy, uh, Shakespeare's tragedy, Macbeth. Lady Macbeth is a, is a leading character in that tragedy. She's the wife of the play's tragic hero, Macbeth, who is a Scottish nobleman. Lady Macbeth pushes her husband into killing the previous king, after which she becomes the queen of Scotland. Later, however, she suffers from the pangs of, of guilt for a part in the crime. And she walks up and down, sleepwalks up and down. And as you watch the play, you find Macbeth going up and down the corridors of the castle, rubbing her hands and insane with the guilt of murder. And she's saying, all the, the spots be, be out. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And she was right. She could not. She seemed to continually wash her hands. And as she rubbed them together, she cried out, Out spot, out, I say. Seeing her misery, a doctor was called in by Macbeth to treat a sleepwalking wife, the Queen of Scotland. Macbeth, recognizing his wife's severe case of guilty conscience, Ask the doctor if he can do something about it. And this is what he asked. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased, pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. I wish... Macbeth knew that nothing 
could take that guilty conscience away except the blood of Jesus Christ. Lady Macbeth had only one option to find deliverance in Jesus, for only Jesus could remove the guilt away. Only Jesus could redeem her. And we all suffer from this problem. We have broken the law of God, and as lawbreakers of the divine law, we are left with only one option, that is get rid of that guilt that arises from breaking God's infinite law. We try every possible remedy. If there is some sweet, oblivious antidote, we try that. If there is any hope in finding comfort in doing good works, we will do that. Like, remember those times you feel bad that you hurt your loved one? And then you went out and bought a nice gift and packaged it for that person? Just trying to patch up that guilt that came as a result of hurting the other person? We'll find every way to alleviate our guilt and find peace for our soul, but we will not rest unless we find our rest in Jesus, because only Jesus can redeem us. The word redeem means to rescue someone, pay a ransom, get someone from captivity. I mean, you watched movies. In the movies, you find the plot in which the villain captures someone who is dearly beloved of the hero, and, and it's usually the heroine, a heroine and, and, and he demands a ransom. The ransom is usually a large sum of money, or the hero himself, and the plot comes to a climax when the hero comes to the rescue and demands the freedom of his beloved in exchange for himself or for a large sum of money. That's ransom. As we hear all this, you're probably wondering, why there needs to be a ransom. You may be saying, I don't think I have a problem. I'm okay. I'm generally a good person. And who said people are bad? People are generally good. And I'm not so bad after all. I don't have a problem. I'm okay. You're okay. Why all this talk about ransom and redemption? I mean, just give me some heartwarming, motivational, sensational, encouraging sermon and let me out. I mean, if you really want to talk to me about redeeming coupons, I'm in for it. Friends, this redemption is about redeeming your life. Hang in there as I take you back into the Garden of Eden, because that's where we need to begin. God told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, Verses 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it and commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So what does it mean when God said, if you eat of this tree, you'll surely die? Well, it means you will die relationally and you will die biologically. Relationally, we know they died immediately. Because Genesis 3, verse 8, when they heard the sound of Yahweh God in the garden, what did they do? The Bible says they went and hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God. They did not want to have a relationship with God. They died relationally, or as we learn in Sunday school class, they died spiritually. And this is what happens, you you read in the book of Romans, you read about it in chapter 1, it says they did not desire God or seek after God because relationally they are dead. They would also die biologically. Until then, death was never God's design for the Garden of Eden when he created the universe. God never intended for man to die. They were created to live forever and ever. But after they disobeyed God, death entered the world. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 reads, The wages of sin is death. Man's life is now limited. He would physically die at some point in his life here on earth. This is physical death. In fact, the whole of creation is going to die. It says the whole of creation is crying out or groaning out for its redemption. 
So we face the reality of death. And as we face the reality of death, we are reminded of what sin has done. As soon as man sins, he would die. Unless, of course, blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now you may say, why did God require the shedding of blood? Couldn't he have created another method? Like you could have rubbed on someone's belly? Or maybe wore a covering and, and bowed down and prayed five times a day? Or maybe God could have given you some kind of beads into your hand and, and a prayer for every bead? Or maybe you could have created a river and you could have just gone and dipped into the river. Why did God require the killing of an animal for the forgiveness of sins? Why all this gruesome blood and slaughter? Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 reads, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 reads, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is what God did when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, The Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them. We see the first substitutionary sacrifice in the garden. God takes an innocent animal, slaughters it. An innocent animal had to die in place of Adam and Eve so that Adam and Eve could live. We find redemption again in the book of Exodus. We read in Exodus chapter 12 that each, uh, each family had to select a lamb or a young goat, or a sheep, and, and kill it, and apply its blood on the doorposts of the house in which they lived, and they would eat of the flesh of that animal roasted with fire and, and unleavened bread. Now, you may have to read this in the book of Exodus, and you, as you read through that in Exodus chapter 11, you'll find that was the tenth plague. All the firstborn in the land would die. But God wanted the nation of Israel to take this lamp on the 10th day and keep it until the 14th day of the month of Nisan. And on the 14th day, they were to kill it, take some of the blood, put it on the doorpost, and any home on which the blood of the lamb was found, the firstborn would be redeemed. God wanted them to know how seriously he hated sin. And he communicated this through sacrificial, substitutionary death of another animal. So you get this. Here's an Israelite family who would bring Fluffy home. A cute one-year-old Fluffy would run around the house and the children would play with Fluffy. And, and after four days, the dad would take Fluffy and kill it. Fluffy becomes a substitute for the family. It was an opportunity for the dad to come alongside as the children would still be thinking about this gruesome slaughter that just took place. For the dad to come alongside the children and talk about how God hates evil. And how sin is so gruesome to God that he demands the life of a person. And the only way this could satisfy the wrath of holy God against sin and the penalty of sin for breaking God's laws of blood was shed. Fluffy dying as a substitute for the family saved the family. And this was Passover because God passed over the home where the blood was applied. An innocent animal dying in place of the firstborn, redeeming the firstborn. So in the Garden of Eden, we saw one lamb dying for one man. Now here, in the book of Exodus, we see one lamb dying for a family. We continue to see this reality in the book of Leviticus, 
It's called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16. Once a year, the high priest of Israel was to enter the most holy place in order to make an atonement for himself and for his house and for the house of Israel, the nation of Israel, two goats were to be offered, one as a sacrifice, another as a scapegoat that bore the sins of the people. The blood of the sacrificial goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the covering of the ark of the covenant where the atonement was made. The blood covered for the sins of the nation. And after this, the high priest would deal with the scapegoat. He would lay his hands on the scapegoat, confess all the sins of the nation of Israel, and the high priest would then send the goat away into the wilderness, never to return back. This was again a shadow of the reality that would be true in Christ Jesus, who would be sacrificed on Calvary for our sins and become the scapegoat, offering forgiveness. So we saw one lamb dying for one, fam- one man. In the book of Exodus, one lamb, one lamb dying for one family. And the book of Leviticus, we see one lamb dying for the nation of Israel. And now we come to the New Testament book. The Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 29, looks at Jesus coming and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ becomes the final substitution. He was killed on the same day that the Lamb was killed, the 14th day of Nisan, Passover day. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 reads this, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You couldn't make anyone perfect with those sacrifices. Otherwise, verse 2 goes on to read, Would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, in the sacrifice of Adam and Eve, in the sacrifice of Exodus, in the sacrifice of Leviticus, in all of these sacrifices, is a reminder of sins every year. And he goes on to say, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so Hebrews chapter 10 continues to read in verses 11 and 12, Every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. And verse 12 reads, But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By the way, as the priest went on to offer the sacrifices into the temple, there was no place to sit down. It was incomplete. This concept of redemption, clearly demonstrated to us from the Old Testament into the New Testament, Jesus Christ becomes a scarlet thread that runs through the pages of the Bible as our Redeemer. Now, men, ladies, friends, children, you may still may not see yourself as a sinner affected by sin in any way. Maybe you see yourself still as a good person. You say, well, I don't hurt anyone. I don't argue with anyone. I'm always pleasing. I am generally a compliant person. I don't steal. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't consume weed, whiskey, or wine. I'm not given into fornication, adultery. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't hate anyone. Yeah, from your perspective, you may be a good person. But did you ask the universe, the king of the universe, God, the creator of the universe, What he thinks about you? Well, let me give you an illustration. And as illustrations, they all break down. But I think, find some sense in looking at it. Say you walk into a doctor's office. And as you walk into a doctor's office, they give you a clipboard with some papers to sign. And these papers ask a bunch of questions. You are to check mark those questions. Some of you are nodding. And I know how boring that task is. And... 
my usual tendency is to check, 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 check everything. I, I don't even read those questions. You know, it's all. No, 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 no. I mean, I know it's dangerous at times. But we will all do that. And, and because you compare yourself to yourself, you're okay. But then the physician will come along and he'll run a battery of tests and will tell you that you do have a problem. And you say, really? I have a problem? Yeah. Well, I did not know that. I just feel normal. How many of you do that? You know, I just feel normal. Well, in the same way, only the absolute lawgiver, Yahweh God, can tell you that you have a problem. The question you would ask me is, where in the Bible does it tell me that I have a problem? Well, Mark chapter 10. There was this man went up to Jesus. said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except, speak to me, God. If no one is good, then we do have a problem, right? Jesus wanted the rich man to know that there is no one good in this world. Romans chapter 7 verse 18 says, I know that no good dwells in my flesh. Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin color? Nor can you do good because what? You are accustomed to doing what? Evil. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above everything else. So we do have a problem. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And if we all have sinned, the Bible states that we are sinners. And if we are sinners, we need a law. Yeah, we need a law. Why do we need a law? Because otherwise it would be chaos and anarchy. And everyone would be doing their own thing. And the Bible says that in Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? Galatians 3.19 says it was added because of transgressions until the seed, that is the Savior, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was needed because the law showed that we needed a Savior and the law was given because we have sinned. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 reads this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly sinners, for the unholy and profane. So you see why we have the law. We have the law because we have become unrighteous, right? The law is meant for the unrighteous. And we needed God's absolute law because we sinned against the holy God. Now a law becomes only a law if, if there are consequences associated with it break, breaking the law. Um, we live in an HOA community, and, and there are many zillion laws in the community. I mean, one says law is you leave your trash can out, trash bin. I mean, after the trash is picked up, you're fine. Now, it's a law because if we break that, you are fine. So in the same way, breaking God's absolute law has a penalty associated with it, and the penalty is death. We have been given the law, and the Bible says the penalty associated with breaking the law is death. And, and you may say, well, I keep all the laws generally, but good luck next time. Because the Bible says even if you break one law, you break on what? All of it. James chapter 2 verse 10. So as lawbreakers, we are under penalty for breaking the law. So not only have you broken the law, you become captive to sin, you become enslaved to sin as well. Jesus says that in John chapter 8, verse 34. Anyone who sins is a slave of sin. John chapter 8, verse 44 reads, You are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Slaves have no will of their own, says Jesus. We are enslaved to sin. We are captive to sin. Our desire is to do Satan's will. So, coming back to where we started off, if you think you're a generally good person and you don't have a problem, the Bible says you do have a problem. You are a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you've been given the law. And the law is there and you've broken all of it. Because you break one, you've broken all of it. 
And now that you've broken the law, you are even enslaved to Satan because if you sin, you become a captive to Satan. And so always, it's catch-22. You need a Savior. You need a Redeemer to redeem you from bondage. You cannot save yourself. So our future doesn't look look bright, does it? I mean, unless your destiny is changed, unless you're ransomed from this bondage the Bible calls sin, death, your only hope is to trust what the Bible says. And if your only hope is to trust what the Bible says, you need to look to Christ for redemption. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Gospel for Real Life, he says, our only safe response is to plead guilty to those accusations against us without trying to minimize them. We need redemption. So when we think of the term redemption, let's do a word study on the word redemption. From the eyes of the first century New Testament people, it would trigger the picture of a slave being purchased and then set free. So there are three words for redemption in the New Testament. The first one is a Greek word, agorazo. Agorazo means agora, you probably understand the Greek, marketplace, meaning to buy in the marketplace. It's like you go to the grocery store or an agora and you buy vegetables and you take them out. The emphasis here is on the price you pay to buy something in the marketplace. In the same way, Jesus paid a price for our salvation and bought us out. This is what is implied in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He bought us out of the slave market of sin, and it cost him his life. This is the same word. Agarazo, which is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, where it reads, You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The second word is adding ex agarazo, meaning to buy out of the marketplace. The preposition act and agarazo. So buying out of the marketplace. This is the word that's used in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 which says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He paid the price. He has taken us out of the market. We now belong to him, never to return to the market. The third word for redemption is the word that's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's the word apolotrosis. Apolotrosis means to lose set free or deliver by the payment of a price. So we are not merely bought with a great price. We are bought out of the marketplace, never to return there again. And we are bought out of the marketplace and set free. We are emancipated from our slavery to sin. Does that make sense with the word redemption? Verse 7 continues. Let's come back to verse 7 in Ephesians chapter 1. It says... This redemption is through his blood. That's the cost of the ransom, his blood. It's not just speaking of death, it's, it's more than death. It's a shedding of blood. Keep in mind, the animals were not killed by strangulation. They were slaughtered. And I told you why, because Leviticus chapter 17 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. Hebrews 9, as I said earlier, everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we see that Christ purchased the church of God with his own price. And Revelation chapter 1 goes on to read that Christ released us from our sins by his blood. So it was through his blood. Let's read verse 7 further. It says, In envy of redemption through his blood. And he goes on to say, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is where we come to the second point, the second truth that we were to look at, that Christ forgives us. Verse 7b. The forgiveness of our trespasses. 
according to the riches of his grace. Immediate result of being released from the bondage of sin is that we have forgiveness as well. Redemption is the cause. Forgiveness is the effect. Forgiveness means losing. Letting someone go from what binds them. That's what forgiveness is. And here we read in verse 7b, it says, The forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our sins. God forgives all of our sins. Through the blood of Christ. All our past, present, and future sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. When we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus' saving work, we are justified. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 reads, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so we might have the righteousness of God. God has forgiven us completely. He has wiped our slate clean. Micah, in the Minor Prophets, reads Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, reads, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in his kessed love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Folks, do you know there are places in the sea, in the ocean, where you can't even measure the depths? And he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Yes, Christ has forgiven us once and for all. But what do we, what do, what, what do we, do we never sin? We do. We do sin many times in our day. We violate the clear commands of the scripture. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's arrogance. Anger. Calling someone names. Using foul language. And as you go through this, the Holy Spirit convicts you from the Word of God as to what you did was sin. And, and so what you do, you repent of your sin and you turn to God. And Satan comes along and puts a thought in your mind. Do you think your sins are really forgiven? I mean, you claim to be a Christian and yet sin. How can you call yourself a Christian? And you know, when you go through those phases in life, you'll be able to answer the devil as follows. Yes, I know I have sinned, but my salvation does not rest on my sinless performance, but on the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? When we sin on a day-to-day basis. Well, this is, this is where the Lord has given us 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. He has forgiven us of all our sins. So there is the the judicial forgiveness, or you can call legal forgiveness. It happens at salvation. And then there is the parental forgiveness. That's something that you do on a regular basis. And 1 John 1, 9 is talking about something where you have broken fellowship, communion with your God because of your sin. And you go back to the scriptures. You're, you're, you're convicted. You, you, the Lord leads you to repentance by His grace. And then you come before Him and say, I confess my sins and repent of my sins. Isn't this what Jesus told the disciple in John chapter 13, verse 10? Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you. So there was a response. There was an aspect of daily cleansing that had to happen. You don't have to take a bath. You've been cleansed. You just need to cleanse your feet. This is forgiveness. 
that we enjoy. Forgiveness of our Savior, not just for one sin or a few sins. It's infinite in nature. Infinite. It's because the Bible says here in verse 7b, it's according to the riches of His grace. This applies to both redemption and to forgiveness. Now, Paul does not say out of his riches, but according to his riches. Now, it's like, for example, you go to a billionaire and you ask him for a donation and he gives you a $100 bill. Has he given you from his riches or according to his riches? From his riches. But if you go back to the billionaire and say, I have a need, and he hands you a blank check, And he says, put down whatever you want on that. Has he given you from his riches or according to his riches? According to his riches. And this is what we see here. God has forgiven us according to his riches. As far as the east is from the west, so far I have removed your transgressions from you. He's cleansed you. I want to park here for a moment and and teach you on biblical forgiveness a little bit. But before we do that, let's let's look at some common misunderstandings people have about forgiveness. Okay, ready for this? Some people use the term apologizing. Have you heard that? I apologize for forgiveness. Forgiveness is not apologizing. We don't find the concept of apologizing in the Bible. But it's a given thing these days that apologizing is seeking forgiveness. Friends, apologizing is not biblical. It's one thing to say, I'm sorry. It's another thing to say, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? I mean, think about this. What happens when you say, I apologize? You're merely saying, I'm sorry. Literally, you're telling the other person, I'm feeling bad for what I've done for you. Nothing else is involved. But when you're making a statement, I have sinned against God and against you, you are reminding them that you've been forgiven by the Lord. 1 John 1.9 says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. So when you say, I've sinned against God and man... You're reminding them Christ promised to forgive you and thereby you're asking them to bury that matter once and for all. You're reminding them that they should bury the matter and not bring it up against you anymore. You get that? In apologizing, no commitment is made to forgive or seek true forgiveness. This is why apologizing is not biblical. Another misunderstanding of forgiveness is the notion of feelings of forgiveness. You probably heard this. I don't feel like he has forgiven me. I don't feel like he has forgiven me. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, Forgive one another just as God and Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Folks, God's forgiveness is not based on feelings. It's not like God saying, now you're going to feel a certain way because I've forgiven you. It's the statement that he makes. When God forgives, he goes on record to say, like he said in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. He says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own namesake, and I will never remember your sins. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34 reads, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God forgives totally and completely, and He says, I will not hold your sins against you anymore. It's not an emotional experience. It's not feelings-oriented. It's a statement of fact. You take it for what it is. God forgives you. Another misunderstanding in regard to forgiveness is the phrase, forgive and forget. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. God doesn't forget things. If you try to forget, you will fail. The harder you try, the more difficult it becomes to forget. Isn't that true? What are you doing when you're trying to forget? You're rehashing the same thing again and again in your mind, right? 
And so you say, I'm going to forget it, but you're thinking the same thing and you're playing around with the same thing like a broken tape recorder. And the more you play it, the more you remember it. And the more you remember it, it's going to cause you heartache. It's going to hurt you. And the memory of your hurt is fresh on your mind. When the Bible reads in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, I'll be merciful towards their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. God is not saying, I forget. God doesn't suffer from amnesia, folks. He doesn't. When he says, I'll never remember your sins anymore, what God is in fact saying is that he will not bring up those sins against us anymore. Meaning he chooses not to remember it. In the same way, when you choose not to remember some sins, eventually, guess what's going to happen? Sooner or later, you're going to forget it. Because you choose not to remember those things anymore, rather than toying around with it. We do this all the time. We say we forgive, and then we dangle that carrot in front of our spouses. You did this to me two years ago. And then, forgive you. And then it happens again. And, oh, you did this to me five years ago. Remember that day? How did you remember? You've been toying around with that in your mind. That's why you fresh in your minds. True? Salo saw, said about this, Psalm 130, this morning. He said, Lord, if you were to keep track of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed our transgressions from you. Guys, have you tried measuring east and west distance? You can never get to that point. It's infinity. And the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed our transgressions from us. Ezekiel chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 38 verse 17, King Hezekiah said to God, You have put all my sins behind me. Can you see anything behind you? No. And King Hezekiah says, You put all my sins behind me. It's out of sight. Isaiah 44 reads, I've blotted out, out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. Folks, this is what Christ did on the cross for you. He forgave you. Now you'll say, well, I can't. That person has not repented so far. He hasn't come and told me sorry, and I am not going to forgive him. Is that what Christ did? What did Christ do in Luke chapter 23, verse 34? He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Those people were not repentant. But Jesus extended forgiveness to them, but that would only become a reality. That forgiveness that Jesus extended would only become a reality in their lives if and when they repented of their sins. And this is what we ought to do. Isn't that what Philippians says? Let this mind be also in you. That wasn't Christ Jesus. Don't we want to have the same mind of Christ? I want to wrap this up with a parable that we heard from our master, Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 18. Remember that story of the brother? He says, how many times should I forgive? He says, seven times. And he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times, seven. And then he went on to say this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with the servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. You know how many, what that cost? 10,000 talents? 10,000 talents is about 20 years of wages. One talent is 20 years of wages. So if you're talking about 10,000 talents, you're talking about 200,000 years worth of wages or pay. So... A man was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all that he had, and payment was to be made. So a servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, the Bible says, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant, he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred denarii. 
You know how much a hundred denarii is? Three months worth wages. Three months worth of pay. He was forgiven 200,000 years worth of pay. And when he found a servant, three, three months worth of pay, he said, I can't forgive you. And what did he do? The Bible goes on to say, he says, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And the master summoned and said to this wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servants? Isn't that what Luke chapter seven forty seven says? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Folks, God has forgiven you your sins. You should be not sitting here. I should not be standing here. If, I, if we are sitting here, if I'm standing here, it's by the grace of God. It's because he has forgiven us. How quick are we to forgive? Are you forgiving? Or how are you holding a grudge? Are you holding a grudge against your brother, your sister, your friend, your brother, your wife, your husband? Christ redeemed you. And because he's redeemed you, you have forgiveness. Infinite forgiveness. Well, let's be a people. That will continue to celebrate this redemption and this forgiveness. No doubt, Paul, in the light of all this, was able to say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, what did he say? Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the joy of setting scriptures together. It is, it is fun. It is, it is Lord, rejuvenating. It is, it, is, it is, Lord, exciting. And it's humbling to come together Sunday mornings, Father, to dig into your word and to study your word. And Father, I pray that even as we walk out from here, may this lesson on redemption resound in our minds and, and drive us to humility. And may this lesson on forgiveness Cause us, Lord, to, to forgive our brothers and our sisters and celebrate the joy of forgiveness every single day and live our lives for your glory with gratitude. In Jesus' precious name we pray. All God's children say, Amen.